You are listening to Sonic Symbolism, where Björk discusses the textures, timbres, and emotional landscapes of her albums with friends, author and philosopher Otni Eir, and me, musical curator Ásmundur Jónsson. This is episode two, post... I always use the word promiscuous for this something. I just wanted to try to work with several people. It was very much also reflecting my life at the time. Kind of big city, big lights, kind of Trafalgar Square kind of energy. I was going to a lot of clubs. I was meeting a lot of new friends that ended up being like friends for life, actually. I was very extrovert, you know, probably the introvert all my life. And then suddenly I was just like very extrovert with very extrovert friends and you're kind of spilling your guts and being over the top, but really enjoying it. But maybe also knowing that you didn't want to do that forever. You know, it was once in a lifetime kind of thing. The words that describe post are Urban, greedy, promiscuity. Euphoric Absorb Euphoric. I know by now that you'll arrive by the time I start 
Björk released her second solo album, Post, in the summer of 1995. Unlike her first album, which she had been writing since her childhood, Post was written in the previous couple of years. The music reflected the fast pace of her life at the time, and as the title says, the distance from her home. The album is a collection of duets. As he says, even though I was working with Borderline Strangers, I thought the handshake between me and the collaborators were very genuine. When I heard Post being blasted at a restaurant in Reykjavik in 1995, I felt as I'd stepped into a time machine. I'd been plugged into a contact with the future. Like Björk was a big sister going abroad far away and sending us siblings back home the most innovative vibes, like sonic secret codes, to the core of her new Electric Times. So we are back on track. We are in Thingvellir, Iceland. How would you describe like the archetype of the post? Well, I actually went for a photo shoot for the album cover of Post and it was quite expensive. <laughs> and I didn't use the photos. And that was maybe the first time when I kind of realized that I knew what I wanted, that it was not just a photograph of me, but it was a photograph of some sort of a homemade tarot card that it had to have certain symbols that stood for how I felt when I wrote those songs. And somehow, in strange way, it was a way to remove it from me, the person me. I adore Back of necks Beautifully shaven Gives me Always, 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 always Always a pretty rest of my spine And in the end I asked Stefan Setnui Who was really close to me at the time and uh, Paul White, who did the album covers with me anyway, and we repeated the photo shoot. And I said, okay, I, I wanted to feel like the girl has just arrived from the countryside to the downtown square. And it's like all the fast lights and all the experiences. And she's just devouring it very quickly, like going to all the restaurants and meet, meeting all the people and writing music with everyone. And it was very sort of about this kind of celebration of consuming the best of a city, like the city in a positive, like a place of everything. Of possibilities. Sucker, Jay. 
think also looking at the lyrics, it's a lot about somehow the alchemy, like about like putting two different elements together. What mm-hmm. in each song you are putting very different elements together, mm-hmm. and uh, the outcome in each song is very different from the next one. So you you feel that it's about that process a little bit. Yeah, maybe that's why I picked like hot pink and orange because it's like two hot colors that kind of clash when they're together. So it was very much about that sort of friction. And of course, I would like to state the obvious that debut was sort of melodies and things that I had written 20 years before. So it was a lot of childhood memories and melodies as well and teenage melodies. Whereas Post was the first album that was just what I'd written the previous two years. Mm -hmm. So it was... You're catching up with yourself. Yes, totally. And at that time, I had done most of debut with Nelly Hooper. And I started working with Nelly Hooper for Post, but then I kind of broke away from it and ended up doing Post with Howie B and Tricky and Kremasi, and it sort of, I ended up almost going the other way, where I would, instead of doing a whole album with one person, I did an album with like four or five different people. Okay. And also, I had been listening myself more to things that were maybe a little bit more, what do you call, not as polished, more, you know, like 808 State, from Manchester, and then later like Warp, label, which is uh, things like LFO and Black Dog and Apex Twin. So it was a mix. Then we have tracks, Army of Me, Enjoy, and I Miss You, which are all different, but still feel part of the same musical family. Could you tell us about these three tracks? Army of Me, I wrote with Graham, Graham Massey, before I did debut. Really? I did Army of Me and Modern Things with Graham probably in like 92, probably. And I was going to make it as a part of debut, but then for me also debut was a more gentler energy. And for me post was more raw, more um, brutal. And maybe you could say that debut was London, but post was more, um, you know, a little bit Manchester, a little bit Scotland, a little bit Bristol. So it was not so slick, you know. At that time, anything that came from London was a little bit slick. And people from Scotland and Manchester and Bristol looked down at all things slick. <laughs> 
They want the things to be raw. And if you complain once more, you meet them on your feet. And if you complain once more, you meet them on your feet. And if you complain once more, When I use the word slick, I, I actually don't use it as a bad word. I think it worked really well on debut to kind of glue everything together, you know. But I think on post, I was like, okay, now I've put aside this raw energy. Now I want to bring it in. Maybe after touring all of debut, I wanted to learn, okay, how can I do a band and play live, but it can also have this raw energy, you know, that an indie band could have, but do it with electronic setup. That was kind of what I was trying to learn how to do. And I think still today, it's the only album I've done in this way, where I, I would meet the people as equals and we would like write together, which I think is quite common in electronic music. So the collaboration is really an issue here. Maybe there is more ego in post or assuming the pop star a little bit, you could see. <laughs> but on the other hand, a lot of collaboration. So it's a deconstruction also there. Uh, mm -hmm. of the ego of the artist as somebody that does everything alone or needs to mm -hmm. own everything, you know, that you can somehow... Uh, yeah, to have the courage to merge with strangers. Yeah. But in a genuine way, not in a superficial way. Yeah, not taking it, but just like, mm -hmm. yeah, you are borrowing and you give something back because this is how I understand what was special in London at that time in this world, in this little underworld that you were... Like in Iceland before, you were a lot helping each other, mm -hmm. uh, giving voice, uh, making space for each other. Yeah, it did feel like a little bit like that at the time for me, you know, that I was in London and instead of like, you know, bad taste and sugar cubes and this kind of collective, if you want, that it was a new collective and a group of friends. And I think we taught each other a lot. It was kind of strangely equal. We all had things to share to each other, you know, somehow. 
I also knew that you can feel it somehow, that it's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of collision. Mm. It's like a happy collision. But you also know it's not going to last very long. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's also a question of um, not the party's over, but somehow people were going to their own directions more after a certain period. This group mechanism cannot go on for endlessly, or usually people then start going more their own ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of why I wanted the album cover to be like I'm at the central station, you know, like with all these people coming and going. We had this wind with all the carts turning and it was like, oh my God, there's so many interactions and uh, wow, this is so exciting, but it's almost too much. It's like this too much. I mean, there are like six singles that was were released from this album at the time. And then again, you do one cover. It's, it's also quiet that became a huge hit. Why did you do that cover? I mean, it's a strange song and it's like 40s, 50s song, isn't it? Yes, uh, Guy Sixworth actually introduced me to the song and I think it was like some strange joke between us because I wanted the album to have a lot of surprises. First of all, to start the album with Army of Me, which was kind of like a raw borderline metal song, mm-hmm. which was the last thing I thought people would probably expect after debut and have that the first single. So it was kind of like you would have one song like that and then you have one song and one song and then to have that was almost like a joke, you know, like, I think it was like the sort of element of surprise. Maybe because it was like the last thing you would expect on that album. But I think it was also maybe like an experiment to embrace all the music in the world, you know, like to be that inclusive, to love music so much that you can have all those different genres and make it cohesive because what is gluing it all together is your love of music. Mm-hmm. So it was also like, you think halfway through an album or something like that comes and you go like, oh, you think we've lost you, but no, it is inclusive because it is, we love music so much that we can include everything, including a ridiculous song like that. So it is a very strange musical humor. The song Isobel is to me one of the standout songs on post. It's where you collaborate on the string arrangements with the Brazilian musician Emuer Teodato. And the lyrics are written by your friend, the Icelandic writer Sjón, based on your own story. 
Could you tell us about your approach in writing this song? Yes, I think from the minute I decided I'm gonna go into solo albums, which was a taboo for the punk generation, I had issues with the self-indulgence of that. So I think my way out of it was some strange sense of humor, which was the tale of the girl who left Iceland, moved to the big city and became that self-important that she wanted to release her own music to the rest of the world. I could only do it in some sort of sense of humor. And it's a very strange sense of humor, which I think nobody understands. But it is by making it into some sort of mythology story. Isobel are lyrics that I, I worked with Sean and we would sit and drink like a couple of bottles of red wine and talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and it was almost like a joke with seriousness of course in it but that's kind of why I couldn't write those lyrics myself <laughs> because it had to be almost that you see it from the outside you know about this girl who leaves nature and goes to the big city you know, kind of like the magic realism stories, but also making fun of them, you know. In the song Cover Me, you tried sampling a piece of music by the French composer Olivier Messiaen. Were you listening to Messiaen a lot at the time? Yes. When I was in music school, he was one of my heroes. I think I preferred him to Bach and Beethoven. I like the French composers, mm -hmm. Gravel and Debussy. And so he was very important to me. I think the culture in the 90s was, there usually was a sample in every song. And I think I didn't want to do that, but it was also sometimes a beautiful idea because sometimes it is like um, you are quoting something that the place you come from and you're paying respect. So it could be uh, like an honorary thing. And uh, I, I've sort of kept it usually at that, like one, maximum two samples per album. I'm Really 
Over Me was a song I wrote myself playing harpsichord I had in my house. So it was more of a solitude song. <laughs> In a way, America was sad about your departure from rock. I remember that you got mixed reviews over there. And it seemed like some people took quite time to get into what direction you were, were heading, even though success was great. But it's kind of different when you look back on Post, your album that has been hailed as one of the all-time best albums by publications like the Rolling Stones. Uh, my question is, why do you think the times did change that quickly, that people kind of took several years or two <laughs> or three years to, to get it where you were heading? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, part of me is trying not to be so aware of the critics. <laughs> I can answer your question from that point of view, but that would not be true. And part of me was really aware of it. So if I could give you an, a dual binary answer, I will try to do that. I think because, of course, from Sugar Cubes, we did a lot of interviews and we were really in the middle of the whole sort of music world, all the magazines and all this world. And a big, big percentage of it, I really did not agree with, you know. And I think I was just used to it. Also from, you know, back in Kökl, when we started this band in 82 or, or 1. You no, know, it's probably 83. No, 82 or 83. And when we did the first Kökl concerts, uh, that we would have 17 people <laughs> come to our concerts. It was the same one in Reykjavik. So I have been uh, got the vaccination for life <laughs> to do what I have to do and not be so worried about what the critics are thinking. But it, it was really curious, the whole kind of machine of musical criticism, because it was very male and it was very rock. And a lot of the huge publications, they would have like 10 male journalists and then one person who would take care of all electronic music and just put all electronic music in like one box, you know, like it was the same mm -hmm. thing. And there would be no women anywhere, you know. We have to remember, this is the world where Kate Bush released an album around this time where she did one song about being heartbroken and washing the clothes of her ex-lover and looking inside the washing machine, going circle and circle and circles. And I remember like reading, I should have kept that review by some rock guy, like talking so down on it, like it was third class music. Just because he was writing about the washing machine, you know, it was so sexist, you know. But it was okay to write huge reviews about bands that were singing about tits and beer and, you know, or, or heroin abuse or... Yeah. That was okay, you know. But the, sort of the, the inner life of the woman and the everyday life of a woman was a lesser area somehow or a lesser art form. And I think I was just used to it. I didn't expect more, you know. But also USA, they were much slower with the electronic scene. It's kind of ironic because a lot of the electronic scene 
came from Detroit, from black gay people right. yeah. in the 80s. So, but they were kind of ignored as both for, for being colored and also for being queer. So, you know, we could probably do a whole radio show just about that. <laughs> <laughs> the unfairness of that. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, but, um, outside of this male issues, I mean, I think the music was, they did not get it in terms of reading back these reviews. It was something that was not part of the culture. Yeah, I think, for example, there was, uh, I always tell the story that there was uh, the rough trade record shop, which was huge, and mm -hmm. it had maybe 10 categories just on electronic music. You would have like drum and bass, and you'd have jungle, and you have progressive house, you have techno, and you have ambient, and you have dubstep, and you, you know, you yeah, have... It was really complicated. <laughs> all the subgenres, yes. but you would go to the same shop in New York, and there would just be one small aisle yeah. with maybe 20 CDs. <laughs> There'd be like one drum and bass CD and one dubstep and one techno and they would all put it in the same box and they call it trip-hop which we in England used to laugh very much at because it's just American word for any electronic music so okay. it was a really lazy journalism but I don't know I to be honest I wasn't upset I think of course there's other things that were amazing in New York like hip-hop and for example uh, jazz of course mm. but maybe experimental electronic music wasn't really what was going on there. But that's, that's okay, you know. There is like a little bit of a, the archetype of the femme fatale also there, I must say. <laughs> and the explorer, of course. And there are some manifestos there in the texts a little bit. So this girl that's like lost in Times Square, she's not maybe Che Guevara, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> there is some, I, I see another, I, I feel another archetype that I cannot quite name it maybe. But then, um, so the challenges. You were claiming a space in debut for your voice. What were you claiming there? What was the challenge there? like mm -hmm. technical challenge. You don't need it to challenge the guitar music anymore. Mm -hmm. Was there any like technical or musical or artistic challenges that you remember? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, right now, today, at this moment, <laughs> I would like to say some sort of extroversy. I did like so many interviews in 93 and 4. It's like every day, every single day I would do many, you know, it, wow. was, it was like, we should count it sometimes, it was like insane. But, it, but for me, it felt like a genuine merge with every single journalist. Mm -hmm. I, I put my heart in every single, you know, just as much as I'm doing this with you now, because that's the only way I can do things. But then it was kind of like, oh, now I'm going to be like the extroverts. But kind of knowing that I was pushing an introvert machine toward 11. Yeah. And that I had to like withdraw straight after. It, but it was somehow like, I don't know, proving to myself that I could do it. Or maybe you have to try everything once. Kind of like normal people go back packing, what do you call it, in the Himalayas. That's like their way of testing themselves. I think for an introvert singer, it's on the musical landscape. You know, it's on the sort of emotional terrain. Mm -hmm. 
And for me, the furthest point that's away from me is being 24-7 extrovert. And not saying no to the interviews, because yeah. as you maybe told me before, like your grandmother was an artist, but she didn't have quite a voice. Mm -hmm. um, your mother also, like, and many artists, uh, males and females, mm -hmm. especially if they are um, experimental or like uh, marginal in a way, mm -hmm. sometimes they don't have a voice, mm -hmm. but sometimes they don't even want to have a voice or when they are given the opportunity mm -hmm. it becomes like a quality of uh, of the marginal uh, of the experimental uh, mm -hmm. not to answer questions so it was not maybe obvious for you to answer all those questions about Iceland and about elves and uh, about mm -hmm. yourself and about your persona and so on mm -hmm. so it must have been uh, somehow almost like a political decision just to say yes and to use your voice like yeah. publicly as a woman artist also without thinking like every time was it lousy or to, did mm -hmm. I say too much? Uh... Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it was uh, strangely like uh, if you get like a super loyal person <laughs> that has to try once in a lifetime to have an orgy <laughs> with, yeah. with 10 people but genuinely mean it. But then that's it. I will never do that again. Like that's how it felt like that I almost had to like do it once. And I think also maybe being for 10 years in bands and bad taste was so much anti anything that was corporate or commercial and all the interview offers we got in Iceland, we always just said no. And, and then we just did our own thing, our own way, you know? So it was always very anti the machine. So I was, the far youngest one watching all these older people than myself and they were saying no to everything like a lot of things mm -hmm. and I thought yes that's very amazing to do that and I, I really honor that and that's a beautiful gorgeous thing but I was also questioning myself in post maybe if you say no to everything are you painting yourself in a corner mm -hmm. are you stuck then in your no to the world so it almost I had to push myself, the machine that I am, to 11 once, almost like a voodoo ritual, yeah. to like, like exorcism. exorcism, to burn it all up mm -hmm. and almost prove that you could be genuine. You could do an interview in the most corporate commercial radio station in the world, but still do it with a lot of, lot of meaning. Later on, you were criticized by being too positive a little bit, like, yeah, not critical enough at that time. Or, what, was that the criticism? My opinion is that with the internet coming and obviously becoming a force in the world where people have a voice, that are not part of the media structure or, or the intelligentsia hierarchy or whatever, or politicians or anything, but like the people. There were girls from called millennials, born in the 80s basically, who were sort of say, could you please stop pretending that so easy for you, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was so interesting. And I was what like, was easy, the career and like being a musician, being feminine in that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I had many moments where I went to a studio and when I came to my record company, the engineer I had hired that day was credited as producer of the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was the only male there. Mm -hmm. And even people like my manager who knows me, you know. And so I, you had not been overtly like publicly complaining or criticizing this. At that time, you used the possibility uh, to talk about other things. That was the criticism a little bit or what? Yeah, because you were not, you were only later criticizing this or analyzing or, or pointing that it had been a struggle for you to say, no, it was me. I am the author, not this guy that helped me for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. I think obviously the millennials, they were not around in the 90s, so they didn't hear me do thousand interviews, you know. So I had this opportunity and this open space. So I was just like, okay, let's just do, 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 do yeah. while it's there. And that's going to be more progress than to be critical. This is not the time to be critical. Mm-hmm. Maybe in five years or five years ago, but not right now. This is when things, kind of like when Me Too happened or something, when something just aligns and certainly like... So I just decided to just go for it. Mm-hmm. And and I'm very happy I did. And I, to be honest, it wasn't really thought out. <laughs> Everything happened so quickly and it was just no. very like... Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. Now it maybe seems like obvious, you know, mm-hmm. that you, you had this possibility and you said yes, and you did all those interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then afterwards, it's, it may be easy to criticize you for what you were saying or what you were not saying. But that's the irony of times mm-hmm. somehow, that when you are judging somebody for... When we are somehow trying to be critical, it's mm-hmm. so important to understand like that just the fact mm-hmm. of seizing the possibility and speaking out mm-hmm. and saying yes to the interview, maybe in itself it was radical, you mm-hmm. know. But maybe now it's so obvious that we don't even count it as political or radical or, mm-hmm. or, or a position or something important. Mm-hmm. You showed somehow a mark of, yes, vulnerability, but also somehow strength mm-hmm. and courage that was well needed for women at that time. I think it was the right thing to do, but it, I think it was also the right thing to do when I retreated and went to Spain. Because I think it, something like that lasts only so long, you know. And there was definitely a moment in 96 where I kind of was started to be invited to the A-list celebrity parties and you know it was like a lifestyle that I could have done and I went to like a few of these parties and I'm very happy I got to witness it as a from anthropology reasons you know mm-hmm. but very quickly I stopped being able to write you know and for me that's always a sign that something's not right I think I was not thinking to be honest about feminism or not feminism I think I was like okay I came here for my songs I cannot write songs in this lifestyle. It, it doesn't work, you know. So I basically went to Spain and wrote an album. So that was definitely a conscious statement. And also I've never regretted because basically being doing all these interviews for 18 months every single day or something, you know, and being on covers everywhere and whatever, it gave me so much, like next time I could get better position in the festivals, I could get more money to get symphony orchestras, you know. It gave me more tools to do my songs. 
And then there is this companion project to post Telegram, the remix album that came out in 1996. This album has a new version of the song Hyperpalat, which you performed with the Brodsky Quartet. Around this time, the English composer John Tavener wrote a piece for you, and you collaborated with the conductor Kent Nagano. It seems like many people from the more classical world wanted to work with you during this time. What are your thoughts on that when you revisit this period of your career? Yes, it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, maybe w what I was trying to do was put myself physically in a life context, which included more of my musical DNA, if you want. And of course, I've always listened a lot to classical music at home and was in music school for 10 years, which is a long time. And uh, in my opinion, the best age to be in a music school, uh, 5 to 15, because you are introduced to so much stuff and then it's kind of perfect after 15 to do your own stuff, you know. At least in my case, I'm very happy with how that all ended up. But I think as much as I was in love with the whole rave context and the going to clubs, I knew that wasn't all of me, you know. That's Friday night, <laughs> but there are six other days in the week. So I think I was trying to find something that was truthful, somewhere in the middle, where you could both have the sort of confessional opportunities as a singer in the space that you do have when you are singing with a string quartet. It's amazing, there's so much room for the voice, you know, because uh, it's another timbre of than the violins, so you you can run everywhere, you know. And then also you have all this musicality. And then, of course, the idea of the string quartet is just amazing, amazing. You know, it's a reason why there is so much string quartet music in the world. It's an incredible canon. I go There were people contacting me from the classical world a lot in that area and I ended up actually performing Piero Liner in Switzerland once with Kent Nagano, which was an amazing experience. I think what it did to me and I think also what I was learning very much in 93-45 was certainly I became a public persona and a lot of people were offering me a lot of things which was very very flattering. Mm -hmm. But then it takes a lot of time and I was feeling bad because I would do something and, and I couldn't give it my best. I only did a little bit of it. So I think also around this time I'm starting to be very, very aware of doing fewer things but give it my all. And also that I wanted to be the author, you know, I think after being for 10 years in bands and serving 
another vision, mm-hmm. even though it's the vision of the group, it's not my vision. I didn't want to serve the vision of any other composer or any other conductor or mm-hmm. just to be the performer. I wanted to try as a woman, I felt the way I could change the world most for other women and girls was to try to make an album where I would give myself the string quartet context, I would give myself techno beats, I would give myself, I would be the author, mm-hmm. you know, and I could do it all myself, you know. So as it was very, very educating and very flattering, it was an amazing experience, but it also taught me that I wasn't missing anything there. Like what I needed to focus on in my mission without wanting to sound too ungrateful. I think there are amazing performers in the world that just do that. And that's a very valuable, respectable profession, you know. But I, I felt that my strength as a musician is more in being a singer-songwriter and to write my own material and perform that and put myself in a situation in each album where I learn a little bit more and become just a little bit better at what I'm doing and put all the eggs in that basket. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Consciously, maybe we are collecting enough experience so we can write. And something in me wanted to try this once in a lifetime. Be that sort of person that has no shelter, is just on a pedestal with a thousand spotlights. If you move your little finger, ten tables fall down. You know, it, 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 it's kind of crazy. There's a lot of electricity there and a lot of voltage. It's a lot of, lot of voltage. Either you enjoy it and you thrive on it and you can like write hundred songs or you self-destruct or you just retreat from it. And that's sort of what I did. And I was very happy I did, you know, it was perfect timing, actually. Sonic Symbolism is a co-production of MailChimp Presents, Talkhouse and Björk, and was made by Björk, Agni Eir, Ásmundur Jónsson, Anna Geda, Ian Wheeler, Julie Douglas and Christian Kunz. It was produced by Christian Kunz and edited by Christian Kunz and Anna Geda. Special thanks to Derek Burkett, Catherine Werner Bentley, Sack Magnís, Ivar Kjartansson, Bergur Thorisson og Duna Steinun Thorgeirsdóttir. Music appears courtesy of One Little Independent Records.